This is Ozarks at Large for Monday, October 30th, 2023. I'm Kyle Callums. I'm Matthew Moore. Today, some concerns are being raised around a new law around Bitcoin mining in Arkansas. Others say it's critical for the future. I want to invest. I want to bring millions of dollars into our state of Arkansas. But I want some protections that as long as I follow the rules and play by the rules and are governed by the rules, that you won't just arbitrarily kick me out of the state. Plus, more than a 1,000 people gathered in Jasper to discuss the Buffalo National River. I have spent my entire life playing on or in the Buffalo National River or its tributaries. I am not for the redesignation of the Buffalo River. And duck boat tragedies remembered with Prior Center Archives. The Coast Guard in regulating these vessels have requirements that says owner and operators have to notify us of any significant repairs that affect the seaworthiness of the vessel. First, the news from NPR. KUAF is partnering with Eureka Springs CAPC to give away tickets to all three nights of the Eureka Springs 76th Annual Original Folk Festival, November 9th through the 11th, with John Fulbright, Brennan Lee, Trout Fishing America, and the Barefoot Ball. Winners announced during the noon edition of Ozarks at Large, November 3rd. KUAF.com for more. It is Monday, October 30th, 2023, and this is Ozarks at Large. I'm Matthew Moore. I'm Kyle Kellams. Thank you for joining us today. During the spring regular session, House Bill 1799 was filed and signed into law. Now, Act 751, it created the Arkansas Data Centers Act of 2023 and clarified the regulation of digital asset mining, better known as cryptocurrency mining. Since its passage, lawmakers on both sides of the aisle are raising concerns with the impact of crypto mining. Matthew brings us this report. Senator Joshua Bryant of Rogers was the lead sponsor on this legislation. and He says the burgeoning industry of cryptocurrency is no different than any other kind of business. You do have to scrutinize it. You do have to watch it. But at the end of the day, it, it may be uh, a piece of our society that actually advances us. Senator Bryant says his priority during this legislative session was being an advocate for property rights. And for him, this bill was a part of that as well. I wasn't approached by anybody other than local citizens, in fact, veterans, which I am, saying, hey, I want to invest. I want to bring millions of dollars into our state of Arkansas, but I want some protections that as long as I follow the rules and play by the rules, and are governed by the rules that you won't just arbitrarily kick me out of the state. To put it mildly, a lot of attention was paid to a few major pieces of legislation that was passed this year. House Bill 1799 was not one of those. On Thursday, March 30th, the bill was filed and assigned to Advanced Communications and Information Technology Committee in the House of Representatives. Pass. Okay, we've got a, a motion. On Monday, April 3rd, it was passed out of committee unanimously. Okay, seeing none, all in favor, please say aye. Aye. Any opposed? Okay, congratulations. On Tuesday, April 4th. As everyone voted, cast up the ballot, Madam Clerk. The House voted 88 to 2 to send it to the Senate. Wednesday, April 5th. I'm closed. I move for due pass. Passed it out of committee unanimously. All in favor say aye. Aye. Opposed? Congratulations, Senator. Thursday, April 6th. Secretary, please roll the vote. Boyd, Bryant, Caldwell, Chester. The Senate passed it unanimously. Seeing none, please cast up the ballot. Vote of 33 yeas, zero nays. And by Friday, April 7th. 
Has everyone voted? The amended version of the bill was concurred by the House 93 to 1. We have concurred in Senate Amendment Number 1 to House Bill 1799. Representative Johnson... Has it been surprising to you to see this pushback at this point with such an overwhelming approval during the legislature? I, yes, to, to be honest with you, I, I ran some pretty controversial legislation um, just for the discussions, if nothing else. And I was a little surprised that this really took a lot of energy out to those other topics. It shouldn't be controversial in a, in a view of property rights, but I think the reason that the, the legislation is good is because whether the legislation it was intact or not, crypto mining was already in Arkansas and the crypto companies were already looking at Arkansas. There seems to be three major concerns with the Bitcoin mining facilities that are cropping up around Arkansas. The first is a strain on utilities, such as water. This is Terry Don. Can I help you? Terry Don Robinson is the mayor of Worcester. A crypto mine is located in Greenbrier nearby, but it gets its water from neighboring Worcester. Just to let you know... <laughs> Whoever put that system in to for the coolant system for to cool the fans didn't, didn't you know? I don't think I haven't been up there, but my water guys said it wasn't. It was put in wrong, and then they've had problems, and they had a leak in the thing. Robinson says the facility utilizes two different 2,000-gallon tanks that are designed to recirculate and use the same amount of water constantly for 60 days. After that 60 days, they dump the water, which is not contaminated in any way, and then refill those tanks. But because of the leak, the usage was extremely high. You know, 479,000, 497,000, and then it went to 601,000, then they went down to 355,000, so it dropped, but they still don't have it fixed. I imagine when you sent out that first water bill, did you did did you have any pushback from from the folks no, who pay the water bill? They paid it because they knew they had a problem, and they've paid every one of them. As Robinson points out, the months with the major water leak are not indicative of their regular usage. I think whoever put the system in, I, I don't want to blame it on them, but. I don't think it was put in correctly myself, or you wouldn't have this problem. <laughs> Electricity, on the other hand, is a greater concern. A study by the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy from September 2022 estimates that the total global electricity usage for cryptocurrency mining assets is between $120 billion and $240 billion kilowatt hours per year. By comparison, that's more than countries like Australia or Argentina. But the bill lays out language that says that facilities will, quote, operate in a manner that causes no stress on an electric public utility's generation capabilities or transmission network. Senator Bryan says this means that crypto mines had to negotiate with Arkansas Public Service Commission. We don't want you to consume and, and take the consumption away from our, our other individuals or our hospitals or our retail. And and crypto got that. They're like, yeah, we, we will absolutely go offline in exchange for that. We want a better rate, but we'll absolutely go offline. And if they don't go offline, there's a huge penalty uh, there that they already put a bond up on. 
and they will get forced offline and then have to pay huge penalties. The second major concern is the noise the crypto mines produce. As we reported back in August, these facilities can be loud. Here's a recording provided to Ozarks at Large from August of the mine located in Greenbrier. Robinson, the mayor of Worcester, says one sound barrier wall has been installed. I think they'll have to put another to the south. I mean, they've put one on the north, and it's got a curved top, and instead of shooting the sound of the north now, it's shooting it south. Uh, but it is pretty loud. I've been up through there. It would be annoying if you lived there seven days a week. And it, it's probably dropped their property value to dead zero. That's the main thing. Senator Bryan says being able to have peace and quiet on your property is a right people should be able to enjoy. Act 851 actually establishes that all these facilities will follow local regulations. It's true that many local municipalities have noise ordinances or decibel-level ordinances in place. However, that is not always the case in rural communities or at a county level. And Act 851 lays out that a local government shall not impose a different requirement for a digital asset mining business than is applicable to any requirement for a data center. That means if a crypto mine is set up in a rural area and there is no noise ordinance in place prior, the local government is not allowed to enact a new ordinance. The final concern is around the ownership of the mines. Reporting from several other news outlets have noted connections between crypto mining in Arkansas and China. At Ozarks at Large, we do not have enough independent reporting to feel confident in making those same assertions. However, After Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders and Attorney General Tim Griffin recently held a press conference announcing the removal of a seed company that owned 160 acres of land in Craighead County due to its parent company being a Chinese government-owned entity, concerns are growing around the various LLCs involved in crypto mining in Arkansas. The law that was used in the case of Syngenta, Act 636, bans nine different countries from owning agricultural land. So it's not entirely clear that it would be applicable to this situation, considering it's not agricultural land. Senator Bryant says he has reached out to the Attorney General about this concern nonetheless. They are reviewing it, they're, they're researching it, and they're, they're going to address it if it violates the law. But I think it goes also back to a a couple of years ago, there was a legislator that tried to advance that you couldn't sell any land to a, a foreign national or especially a Chinese foreign national. And that, that didn't advance because you have landowners in Arkansas, farmers in Arkansas that want to be able to sell their land for their best and highest profit. And so it's it's uh, got referred to me as you're starting to pick a, at, a, at a stick out of a bundle of sticks and be careful which one you pick because the bundle might unravel. We reached out to Governor Sanders' office to talk to Jamie Barker, the governor's legislative director. He was not made available for an interview or to provide comment. Communications Director Alexa Henning also declined a request to do an interview on the record, but provided a statement saying that the safety and security of Arkansans is Governor Sanders' top priority. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Matthew Moore. And ahead on today's show, after updated federal regulations for a certain kind of recreational boat were announced recently, Randy Dixon with the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History 
reached into the center's archives. Ducks are a hot springs tradition. Authorities say the amphibious vehicles have a spotless accident record in around 40 years of use. Saturday, all that changed as the record suffered a major blemish when one suddenly sunk in Lake Hamilton, killing a dozen passengers. Duck boat disasters in Hot Springs and Branson remembered later on today's Ozarks at Large. I'm here with Jacqueline Froelich, Ozarks at Large senior news producer, to discuss a town hall meeting that was held Thursday in Jasper in Newton County about a controversial effort to expand the Buffalo National River into a national park preserve. Hi, Jacqueline. Hi. As you've reported, the Walton-backed runway group in Bentonville has been leading this effort. They've met with state and federal officials, but not with the public. So how many turned out for the town hall meeting and what was the tone of the meeting? I spoke with Wendy Finn. She's a co-organizer for the new Alliance for the Buffalo National River, which aims to thwart any National River redesignation. She says 1,185 attended the town hall in person, with 1,900 attending virtually. She says the event was calm, but that many in the crowd were clearly upset about potential park expansion. People were angry at the idea of possibly losing land, of a possible designation change. I think most people opposed a designation change to the Buffalo National River. The meeting featured a panel that was comprised of county natives, an attorney, a state senator, an Arkansas Farm Bureau official, and a few farmers and scholars. All of them oppose a park preserve. Yeah, the audio stream quality is not the best, but this is Newton County resident Billy Bell. His family traces back generations. I have spent my entire life playing on or in the Buffalo National River or its tributaries. I am not for the redesignation of the Buffalo River. Bell told the crowd that, quote, rich men not from here are pushing to change a way of life. He's referring to Runway Group. They invest in real estate, businesses, outdoor recreation, and conservation. Runway's interest in changing the Buffalo River status came to light in September when the Waltons commissioned a survey and posted results online as the Coalition for Buffalo River National Park Preserve. The five-county survey shows a majority would support a park preserve, but I was told by Finn the survey excluded a lot of residents in Newton County, which is in the heart of the Buffalo River watershed. So why is Runway Group involved in this? Runway spokesperson J.T. Guerin in an email to Ozarks at Large wrote that a change in the status will provide benefits to the surrounding communities and needed infrastructure to support an ever-growing number of tourists. Data show that the Buffalo National River in 2022 attracted 1.3 million visitors who spent nearly $65 million on food, accommodations, and outfitting. Redesignating a national river would require an act of Congress, and you queried Arkansas Governor Sarah Sanders about her role in this, and were told that Sanders had spoken with U.S. Congressman Bruce Westerman, whose district is encompassed by this. When she took office, Sanders vowed to make Arkansas a top recreation destination, signed an executive order establishing the Natural State Advisory Group, appointing her husband, Brian Sanders, as chair. But the thing is, key stakeholders, including the Buffalo River National Park Service and the Apex Environmental Group, Buffalo River Watershed Alliance, were excluded by runway in any discussions. We spoke with Alliance President Gordon Watkins after the town hall. 
Yeah, I think it was unfortunate uh, the way they chose to to proceed with this project, and it, it began at the top with, with Congressman Westerman's office, from what we can tell, back in uh, July of 2022. Which was startling to hear that this has been in motion for well over a year. Watkins did tell me that Runway finally agreed to meet with him virtually the day before the town hall gathering and was told the company is stepping off, stepping away from facilitating what it frames to be an economic development project. It's unclear who will take over and what's next. Congressman Westerman is reportedly planning his own town hall, apparently. Mm. Mm -hmm. But to better understand the consequence of a national park preserve, you spoke with Alan Franco. He's a lawyer who researches rural land use regulation, including this specific situation. Yes, here's what he had to say. Well, we know that they're going to be interested in making a profit off the Buffalo National River. One way that they could do that is through tourism and vacation rentals. Right now, the current legislation doesn't expressly allow for vacation rentals. Other national preserve designations in more recent years have specifically allowed for the development of vacation rentals within the park boundary itself. I was surprised to hear this as well, Hmm. but it makes sense given several state lawmakers are pushing legislation to nullify county and municipal codes at work to control short-term rental sprawl, which has been shown to vastly reduce affordable residential housing. Franco also says if the National River is expanded into a national park preserve, it's unlikely that private property, based on recent federal trends, would be taken through eminent domain condemnation. Instead, he says property would be acquired through purchase. As for allowances for hunting, animal grazing, industrial agriculture, minerals and fuels extraction on a redesignated Buffalo National River Park Preserve, all of that could be allowed, but the details will be up to Congress to decide. Yeah, that, that feels like kind of the sticking point of all of this, right? Yeah. You also asked Runway Group if the LLC has invested in the Buffalo National River Foundation to improve things like access, trails, facilities. What was the response? Yeah, it seemed like a really good question, but no comment. But they did email me a link to a five-year-old National Park Service study citing myriad problems within the Buffalo National River Park boundary. The Buffalo River was declared our nation's first national river in 1972, just over 50 years ago, after efforts to impound it for hydroelectricity were defeated. Jacqueline, your work will never be defeated And we thank you for everything you're doing. We'll continue to follow this story. Thanks for your work. Thanks, Matthew. It began as a beautiful day for an outing on the lake, but things went awry around noon when the amphibious craft, known simply as one of the ducks, filled with water and sank. Haunting words from a survivor of the deadly Missouri duck boat accident, recalling the tragic final moments of much of her family and how she struggled to survive. When a barge rammed into and over a duck boat filled with sightseers. This is Ozarks at Large. Time to go through some prior center archives once again with Randy Dixon. Randy, what did we just hear? Ah, that was really tough. Yeah. Uh, those were examples of tragedies that have occurred over the past years. Uh, on or involving those popular tourist sightseeing amphibious vehicles, right? Uh, better known as duck boats. And I think if you're listening here, you probably have seen them either most likely in Hot Springs or Branson. 
Exactly. Those they're, two tourist they're, places, yeah. They're very common and all over the place, uh, especially in tourist towns. But they're they're all over the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't realize till I started researching this, but we're going to look mainly at two of the biggest, well, the biggest in the history of these. And uh, that was in Hot Springs mm-hmm. in uh, May of 1999. 13 people were killed. And then in Branson on Table Rock Lake in July of 2018, and 17 people right. died in that instance. So in, in case, for the uninitiated, duck boats are these sort of amphibious-looking things that you well, get on, and it, there's a pilot it, who takes it, you off land into water. It looks like an old boat with wheels. And the, the safety problem that seems to keep coming up is, is the issue of the canopy mm-hmm. that's on top because it covers the entire boat, and there's a, a large lip that goes down on each side. And when these sink, and they sink quickly, you know, it's more heavy, two tons, right. it's going to sink fast. Um, and you'll hear in some of these reports that, that they may have sunk in as a little as 30 seconds. Ugh. And uh, people get caught right. underneath that, that canopy. And another issue is they, they do have life jackets, but people don't always wear them because it's usually the middle of the summer. It's really hot. Mm. And you put on a life vest and yeah. you're going to get hot. You should always have the life you'll vest You'll float. On. Yeah. Well, so you mentioned the two largest tragedies have happened in this region. The Let's go with Hot Springs. Yes, that, that was the first. That was when I was at KATV. Um, I was actually, it was on Derby Day. So oh, wow. I was in... Arkansas Derby. It, no, this was the Kentucky Derby. Oh, okay. And I was in Louisville uh, when this happened. It was May 1st of 99, and this is the initial... Uh, Special report from Pamela Smith. This is a special report from Channel 7 News. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Pamela Smith. We are briefly interrupting programming now to bring you news of a tragedy this afternoon at Lake Hamilton. We will get back to the Kentucky Derby in just a moment, but we want to show you some video now from the scene that happened around noon. An amphibious tourist boat capsized, leaving several people dead. We are told now 11 have been confirmed dead. One body is still missing after the boat capsized. 20 people were on board at the time. The boat travels on land and water and is a very popular ride among Hot Springs tourists. We are also told that the driver is still alive. We have no idea at this point what has caused this accident. Officials say it is the first major accident in more than 40 years in Hot Springs. And as uh, developments or or details unfolded, the coverage continued? That's true. Uh, Justin Acri, one of KTV's reporters who's now with the buzz mm-hmm. uh, radio in Little Rock um, was uh, on the scene all day and, and pretty much stuck with the story the whole time. Here's uh, part of Justin's first report. Ducks are a hot springs tradition. Authorities say the amphibious vehicles have a spotless accident record in around 40 years of use. Saturday all that changed as the record suffered a major blemish when one suddenly sunk in Lake Hamilton killing a dozen passengers. Yeah, it was uh, a very fast sinking in uh, 
was real hard for them to try to, to get to the life jackets. Lieutenant Rodney Neighbors of the Garland County Sheriff's Department says passengers on the ducks are not forced to wear life jackets, although the company must provide them. The life jackets were stored right above their heads. Uh, and like I say, my understanding is that they're not required to have the life jackets on as long as they have enough for each person on board. The disaster has torn apart families. One woman reportedly lost her husband, two grandchildren, and her daughter-in-law, leaving only her son to grieve with. And a family of four quickly became a family of one as a young boy survived while his mother, father, and sister all drowned. And whenever there is a transportation disaster like this, be it a boating accident or a plane accident, you know, federal investigators come in. Yeah, the National Transportation Safety Board and the Coast Guard were both there uh, either late that day or the next day. And here's Justin again. He stayed with the story. Coast Guard investigators got their first up-close look at one of the ducks Monday morning and say the design of the vehicle should allow people to escape out the sides under normal circumstances. They're 24 inches high and about three foot, you know, seat to seat. That's a pretty big opening. And in anything but a very drastic, quick sinking like this, there would have been plenty of time to use that. Some witnesses say the boat went down in less than 30 seconds, contributing to the death toll. There's evidence that problems arose with the duck last week that required repairs and that it could have played a role. The duck was last inspected by the Coast Guard on February 23rd. Representatives say an updated inspection is required only if major work is needed. The Coast Guard in regulating these vessels have requirements that says owner and operators have to notify us of any significant repairs that affect the seaworthiness of the vessel. So later that year, the NTSB, of course, con continued its investigation, and there was a, a hearing held, and um, one of the first people on the scene was a diver from the Garland County Sheriff's Department, Mike Robertson, and here's how he testified um, in more detail of what I was saying about how difficult it is to get out of a sinking duck boat. If, if they had had just a few more seconds and put the, the life jackets on but they didn't had, make it out the windows, what If they had had a little bit more time and had the life jackets on and started getting out of the windows before the duck got to a point where it was actually sinking, that would have been fine. If the life jackets were on and the boat was sinking and the, it was forcing them towards the front of it, it's just going to absolutely pit them against that canopy and they're not going to be able to go anywhere. You'd have had, they'd have had trouble fighting to get down without one. Because I mean, you're talking an eight-ton vehicle just about. It's going to sink very fast. It's chilling to hear him talk about that. Yes, Oof. and he knew firsthand. He was one of the first right. ones in the water. And, uh, you know, that's didn't stop there. Um, it was years later. This was in 2018, uh, July 19th, uh, to be specific. But this was in Branson, where there are a lot of duck boats. Mm -hmm. It was on Table Rock Lake. Uh, another sank. And this was in uh, more weather-related. Here's ABC's Victor Akindo with a report, plus an interview with a surviving passenger, Tia Coleman. Tonight, haunting words from a survivor of the deadly Missouri duck boat accident, recalling the tragic final moments of much of her family and how she struggled to survive. I couldn't see anybody. I couldn't hear anything. I couldn't hear screams. I just, it felt like I was out there on my own. Tia Coleman, speaking from her hospital bed, was on an annual vacation with 10 other family members when disaster struck. Finally, I said, Lord, just let me die. Let me die. I said, I can't, I can't keep 
drowning. I just can't keep drowning because that's how I felt. And then I just let go. Coleman says when the waters on that Missouri lake became choppy, people grew nervous. Everybody started getting like, hey, this is a little bit too much. The duck tour boat tossed around by strong winds and six foot swells caused by a severe thunderstorm, finally capsizing and sinking. The last thing I heard my sister-in-law yell was grab the baby. Coleman losing her husband and three children, the youngest just a year old. Her 13-year-old nephew, Donovan, her only relative on board to survive. Her family, nine of the 17 killed that day. And I said, Jesus, please keep, keep me. Just keep me so I can get to my children. Keep me, Lord. And I was swimming. I was swimming as fast as I could. And I couldn't reach, I could not reach the life jacket. I don't know if, I don't think we've said this yet, but these duck boats are not new vehicles. Oh, no. They... No, um... They do have new ones, mm -hmm. but the ones that have been in use the most uh, were built in the 40s and used in World War II uh, to bring troops onto the coast. Uh, I believe, so 70 years old. Yes. Yeah. So the reason we're talking about duck boats today is just last month, the Coast Guard uh, released some interim regulations as a result of that accident five years ago right um i got in touch with the area coast guard and talked to lieutenant chris horn uh, about some of the changes uh, that need to be made to those old boats a canopy that does not restrict horizontal or vertical escape by passengers in the event of flooding or sinking if no canopy is installed all passengers are required to wear personal flotation devices, install independently powered electric bilge pumps that can dewater such vessels, install no fewer than four independently powered bilge alarms, conduct an in-water inspection of such vessel after each time a through-hole penetration has been removed or uncovered, verify the watertight integrity of any such vessel through an in-water inspection at the outset of each waterborne departure. Install underwater light emitting diode, LED lights that activate automatically in an emergency. So this goes again back to what you were saying about canopies. Right. So yeah. in other words, the canopies need to be altered. The drain plugs in the boats need to be permanently sealed and pumps added, and then sure. exterior strobe lights underneath. So, like I said, those rules only apply to the really old ones from World War II, and there are only 16 of them left in the country. Mm. Guess how many are in Hot Springs? A majority? Ten. Okay. Ten out of the yeah. 16 are in Hot Springs. Now, I called uh, the Hot Springs Company a national uh, park duck tours and they didn't want to talk uh, on the record because of previous mm -hmm. uh, you know negative publicity but they did say that they are working to get into compliance I, I did read a sentinel record article that the owner is in the process of making those changes and according to my calculations they have until march of next year 
now, to I don't, get it all done. Do the duck boats run in cold weather? I mean, I would. I have. Well, I I talked to them about their schedule. They run uh, year round wow, okay. and have four or five. I believe the schedule runs. Four a day in Hot Springs and five a day in Branson. My goodness, I didn't know that. So, yeah. So I talked to another person with the Coast Guard. This is Lieutenant Commander Gordon Gerdeser from the Coast Guard. It's the Coast Guard's highest priority to prevent future tragedies like the ones experienced in Hot Springs, Arkansas in 1999 in Branson, Missouri in 2018. The Coast Guard issued this interim rule as the first step to implement the statutory mandated requirements for duck amphibious passenger vessels. The statutory mandate was enacted after the sinking of the Stretch Duck 7 on July 19, 2018, which resulted in the tragic loss of 17 lives on Table Rock Lake, Missouri. I mean, on one hand, you know, so the, the Branson tragedy was a little more than five years ago. Right. right? 2018, warm weather months of 2018. Right. And so it shows you how long a process, the process like, takes. Yeah. And so they're working on it, even if it is uh, slowly. Uh, what I was surprised about is that, um, you know, of these de- deadly duck boat accidents, because some of them were on land. Oh. Uh, in, involved in a in a big car accident that they happened to be give you know giving a tour. Yeah, because some of these accidents were in Pennsylvania and other yeah, places. Philadelphia, yeah, Philadelphia, Boston, even Seattle. Mm. But uh, yeah, some were on the water, some were on the land. Why duck boats? Why are they called that? Well, it's um, it's actually a manufacturer's code, which is D U K W. And the D is the model year. Okay. And that's the most important because that means they were built in 1942. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Uh, the U refers to the body style utility, which means amphibious. And then K for all-wheel drive. And the W is for dual rear axles. And and what the the owner of the the hot springs duck boats he is modifying the canopies mm. so that there are, it is open in places that people can go up instead of having to go down, down or out and back out yeah. which has been the problem people get trapped under that canopy so i think once these modifications are made to the canopy um they'll be much much safer All right. You can find this and so much more Arkansas history. Just put Prior Center into a search engine. We'll do it again next week. Let's do it. I'll see you then. Saturday, the Fayetteville Public Library again hosted the Be Aware Allergy-Friendly Halloween Extravaganza. Organizations, including KUAF, provided allergy-free treats to hundreds of children and families that came to the library between 10 and noon. We also asked anybody who came to our table to give us a Halloween sound, and many obliged. Can you say trick-or-treat or happy Halloween? 
say trick or treat. Uh, no. How about you? One, two, three. Boo! Happy Halloween. What's your favorite part of Halloween? I'm getting candy. What's your favorite candy? Um. Sackers. So, uh, what do you like about Halloween? Uh, candy and uh, costumes. Well, that's good because that's what it is. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Happy Halloween. Oh, nice. We couldn't help but notice that the children in the scariest costumes, and there were some scary costumes, were generally the most intimidated when it came to speaking into the microphone. We didn't make anybody. We also noticed fairies, princesses, unicorns, almost any child with wings attached to their costume, well, they gave us the scariest roars. <laughs> this is the third year for the event to be held at the Fayetteville Public Library. The idea for an allergy-free Halloween event began five years ago at local business Big Box Karaoke. Co-owner Melina Urso says the concept's origin is both personal and community-based. Well, we started our small business and we wanted to do something fun for the community for Halloween and we wanted, to, we wanted it to revolve around kids. Um, our daughter has food allergies and we knew that we wanted to create an experience for kids with food allergies and no food allergies so they can have fun and be safe and, and you know, get great candy and treats. If you miss the event this year, come by and see us next year. Thank you to KUAF's Director of Community Engagement, Jasper Logan, for setting up our table, and to Pete Hartman and Matthew Moore for being with us as well. And a special thank you to Jamila for volunteering with us Saturday after moving here earlier this year from Denver. Well, happy Halloween to you. Happy Halloween to you, too. This is Ozarks at Large. October marks LGBTQ plus History Month. Ozarks at Large's Victoria Hernandez reports. October is known to be a spooky season with the start of fall and all things Halloween. However, for some, it is a month of learning and researching those that came before them. October is LGBTQ plus history month and has been for nearly two decades. I spoke with the University of Arkansas's Dr. Arlie Ward, an instructor in the Department of History, about what the month means and why LGBTQ plus history is American history. Dr. Ward, thank you for meeting with me today. Can you take a moment to describe a little bit about your background studying and teaching on the subject of LGBTQ plus history? Yes, thank you for having me, first off. Um, I am a doctorate in history at the History Department at the University of Arkansas, a modern Americanist. And my research's interests have always been geared around efforts of those on the outside of communities to make their way into the community, to have greater awareness, to raise understanding, and that just simply fits with LGBTQ plus history. The effort of finding historical silences where people were not paid attention to or records did not survive and try to fill in that gap so we can prove that LGBTQ history existed and that it still does. All right, so today I just want to take some time and discuss what LGBTQ History Month is and why it is important. What are your thoughts on that? Um, it's an awareness month. You know, we do that for several different things a year. But it's important because it allows us to focus our efforts for one calendar month to be specific and intentional with our efforts to highlight the importance of LGBTQ plus people. The thing I always tell my classes is there are LGBTQ plus Americans and Arkansans. And so it's important that we recognize those people and talk about their contributions, lift them up, encourage and support them, especially in times that we find ourselves living in now. 
And um, it's a great opportunity to do that and remember where we came from and where we'd like to continue on towards further equality. The celebratory month has only been around for two decades. Why do you think that is? Again, I think it's because you had efforts to diminish the presence of those people. Um, legally, it was illegal to be LGBTQ plus for a long time. Sadly, that works its way into historical archives where resources are not saved. Or it's a danger to even be speaking up about who you are. And so it took a while to have a groundswell, notably after the Stonewall riots and the um, gay pride celebrations and marches, to finally have that come forward and have enough support to push that into the fore. So LGBTQ plus History Month provides an opportunity for us all to reflect on how the lived experiences of LGBTQ plus people have changed. Reflecting on your own research and teachings, why do you think it is important for people to continue celebrating LGBTQ plus History Month? It's the same thing again about history of America and history of Arkansas. We have to remember that there was a struggle to have the recognition that we have now and the limited protections that we have now. If we don't remind ourselves of how things were, it's going to be a lot harder to keep us going, keep us from going backwards to those darker times where it's frightening for people to be who they are or to say who they love, right? Um, for instance, in most states in the country, you can still be fired for being LGBTQ plus without any other reason, even today. So we have to build on our momentum of pushing ourselves forward and gaining greater recognition and allyship as we go. How can the history of LGBTQ plus people in the U.S. help us understand the impact of being LGBTQ plus in Arkansas right now? Um, you cannot teach history of anything, the world, Arkansas, or the United States, without talking about the efforts of LGBTQ plus people. People may not be aware that they're doing it, but they are doing it. Um, for example, World War II, Alan Turing is an LGBTQ plus person that breaks the Enigma code for the Germans and enables us to win World War II. Um, Arkansas specifically, specifically Fayetteville, has an amazing story associated with the um, development of the gender studies program on campus. And there was a group, um, a lesbian student group, that called themselves proudly the Razor Dykes and wanted student funding from the university and were denied that and had to push forward with that. The reason that they were denied funding was simply because of their name. And they were asked repeatedly to just change their name and they would get the funding they wanted and they resisted that. And so they paved the way for a lot of people in this area to see yourself as a valuable community member and demand that you have equal resources to help yourself and the community more broadly. This is a Monday edition of Ozarks at Large, a Monday following an autumn weekend filled with sports, even without a Razorback football game. The Fayetteville Bulldog volleyball team celebrating its fourth consecutive state championship. Saturday, the Bulldogs defeated Conway 3-2 to take the 6A title in Hot Springs. Benton won the Class 5A championship with Brooklyn Baptist Prep and Mansfield claiming championships in the 4A, 3A, and 2A title games, respectively. The 10th-ranked Razorback volleyball team continues to roll. Yesterday, the team picked up its first 
ever win at Florida, sweeping the 19th-ranked Gators. Arkansas will be at Georgia Wednesday night. The collegiate soccer postseason really gets underway this week. The 10th-ranked Arkansas Razorbacks, regular season SEC champions, will open play in the SEC tournament tomorrow in Pensacola, Florida, against Auburn. This weekend, head coach Colby Hell was named SEC Coach of the Year, Ava Tankersley SEC Forward of the Year, and B. Franklin SEC Midfielder of the Year. Both John Brown University soccer teams will host quarterfinal matches in the Sooner Athletic Tournament this weekend. The women are the top seed and host Southwestern Christian Saturday afternoon at Alumni Field in Salem Springs. The JBU men will be the second seed in the tournament, and they'll host a quarterfinal match Friday afternoon at 4. And the Little Rock Trojans soccer team will play in the Ohio Valley Conference Tournament semifinals Thursday. This after racking up tournament wins against Tennessee Martin and Southern Indiana this past weekend. The Razorback cross-country teams now turning their attention toward the NCAA South Central Regional Meet that will take place November 10th in Fayetteville. This after Friday's SEC Championships in South Carolina. The men's team, ranked 8th in the nation, won the SEC championship race Friday morning. The 11th-ranked women finished 2nd to number 7 Florida. The NCAA South Central Regional Races will be at Agri Park in Fayetteville November 10th, with the women's race beginning at 10.30 that morning, the men running at 11.30. And yes, it is only an exhibition game, but an Arkansas win over Purdue certainly has Razorback basketball fans excited. The 14th-ranked Arkansas men's team defeated the third-ranked Boilermakers in overtime Saturday afternoon in Bud Walton Arena. The exhibition game raised money for Arkansas 211, a program of the United Way. Arkansas's regular season will begin a week from today with Alcorn State at home. From Little Rock, I'm Stephen Cook with Arkansas. singer, pianist, and songwriter Sippy Wallace was born Beulah Thomas in Plum Bayou in Jefferson County, Arkansas on November 1, 1898. She was one of 13 children. The Thomases were very much a musical family. Her father was also a preacher, and she sang and played piano in his church. She later said she got the nickname Sippy in grade school because her teeth were so far apart she had to sip everything. She grew up in Houston, Texas, which is why she was later promoted as the Texas Nightingale. In the teens of the 20th century, Sippy moved to New Orleans, living there with her musician brothers George and young Herschel, until in 1917 when she married Matt Wallace. She hooked up with the emerging New Orleans jazz scene through her brother George, also a Plum Bayou native. Like their sister, both George Washington Thomas Jr. and Herschel Thomas became known as innovative writers and influential pianists in the development of jazz and blues. Pressure? No, it's from my man. In the 1920s, they all moved to Chicago, Illinois, which was becoming a commercial recording center for jazz and especially blues, as well as rivaling New Orleans as a U.S. musical hub. Popular recorded blues in the 1920s was dominated by female vocalists, often with full band arrangements. For most people of the era, their introduction to the blues was through the likes of Bessie Smith, Ida Cox, Ma Rainey, and Sippy Wallace. Wallace recorded more than 40 songs through the decade for OK Records, one of the premier blues labels of its time. Her sidemen included some of her New Orleans friends like Louis Armstrong, King Oliver, Clarence Williams, and Sidney Bechet. All would become giants in jazz, which was emerging as its own genre distinct from the blues. 
Wallace wrote the majority of her songs herself or with her brothers. George Jr. handled the publishing. As she honed her songwriting voice, Wallace became known for her sharp, self-possessed, and often ribald lyrics. And more than a century beyond, Sippy Wallace songs remained highly regarded in the blues canon. After a seemingly charmed career, Sippy Wallace faced tragedy in 1936 with the death of her husband, Matt. Her brother, collaborator, and music publisher, George Washington Thomas Jr., considered by some to be the inventor of boogie-woogie piano, died soon after. By the mid-1930s, the commercial dominance of women in blues had also declined and has never again matched the 1920s wave that Wallace had rode. Subsequently, she backed away from secular music. Wallace returned to her musical roots as a church organ player in Detroit, Michigan, where she'd be based for the rest of her life. The Texas Nightingale, who in the Roaring Twenties bragged on stage and on record that she was a mighty tight woman, could now be found most weeks playing at Detroit's Leland Baptist Church. The mid-century resurgence of folk and blues music saw many of Sippy Wallace's peers staging musical comebacks. By the late 1960s, Wallace was finally convinced by her old musician friends to do the same. She made concert appearances at such major events as the Newport Blues Festival, the Chicago Blues Festival, and the Ann Arbor Blues Festival. An album pairing her with Victoria Spivey, who'd also recorded blues in the 1920s with many of the same musicians as Wallace, was released in 1970. A stroke slowed Wallace's newfound momentum, but only temporarily. Guitarist Bonnie Raitt was a champion of Sippy Wallace's music from early on. Raitt had included two Sippy Wallace songs on her 1971 debut and another on her follow-up the next year. As Raitt became better known, she continued introducing Wallace to an even wider audience, with the two often performing on stage together. Bonnie Raitt helped Wallace get a record deal on Atlantic, and Raitt produced the 1982 album Sippy. It won a Handy Award and was a Grammy nominee. After nearly a century in music, Arkansas and blues pioneer Sippy Wallace died in Detroit, Michigan on her November 1st birthday in 1986. From 1982, here's Sippy Wallace of Jefferson County, Arkansas with You Got to Know How. Played my truth.
Pioneer and Jefferson County, Arkansas native Sippy Wallace with You Got to Know How. It's another song of Arkansas. From Little Rock, I'm Stephen Cook with Arkansas. Arkansas is underwritten by Arkansas Heritage. Relive your favorite Barton Coliseum concert memories at the Old State House Museum in downtown Little Rock, where they still play it loud. Ozarks at Large is a production of 91.3 KUAF Fayetteville, a service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Contributors today included Jacqueline Froelich, Randy Dixon, Victoria Hernandez, and Stephen Cook. Matthew produced our program in the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio 2. Have you seen the forecast for trick-or-treating? Unfortunately, I have. Oh, it's going to be cold. Yeah, I'm going to be spending some time in central Arkansas where it will... Not be much warmer, but it'll be a little bit warmer. Yes. The good news is that 18-degree low or 19-degree for northwest Arkansas, that's not at prime trick-or-treating time, Mm -hmm. but still. I mean, it is almost November, so I guess. Yeah. Uh, It was warm in the Fayetteville Public Library, though, Saturday. It was was a really, really good turnout. Um, My family mostly went as spectators, mostly went as participants. Uh, It was really delightful to get to spend uh, some time uh, with the family and have everyone gawk at how cute and adorable uh, my kiddo was. Um, it's a good feeling to have when people are like, that's really cute. And so many families and children came mm-hmm. by and there were, it wasn't just KUF, there were other organizations that were there mm-hmm. all over sort of the newer set of the library. It weren't in the way of people checking out books or anything like that. And again, if you didn't make it this year, come on by next year. It's usually the Saturday before Halloween. Mm-hmm. Yep. Really good turnout. We're really grateful for the Fayetteville Public Library for putting that on. All right. Another show tomorrow. I'm Kyle Kellums. I'm Matthew Moore. Thanks for being with us. The Scott Family Amazium in Bentonville offers adventure and play every day. Families can explore more than 40 hands-on interactive experiences designed to ignite curiosity and fuel creativity. The Amazium is open every day except Tuesdays. Hours, upcoming programs, and more at amazium.org.